The scripture this morning is from Psalm chapter 136. Hear the word of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. His love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens. His love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. His love endures forever. Who made the great lights. His love endures forever. The sun to govern the day. His love endures forever. The moon and stars to govern the night. His love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. His love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them. His love endures forever. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm. His love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder. His love endures forever. And brought Israel through the midst of it. His love endures forever. Forever. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness. His love endures forever. He remembered us in our lowest state. His love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies. His love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Psalm 136 was used by Israel, and we think most likely the way it was used was the community would gather, the priest would say the one part, and the rest of the gathered saints would yell out, His love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that Your love endures forever. We are here this morning because of that. We are here not because we're good enough not because we've earned something with you, definitely not because we've proven ourselves to you that we are somehow worthy of your love. We are here because we're yours, and we thank you that you love us, Lord. We ask that you would now give us ears to hear and open your word to us, that you would make us a little more like yourself, that you would sanctify us, And Lord, that we would all the more give you praise and honor and glory as you alone are worthy. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last week on Easter, we finished a long series of the book of Mark. In eight weeks from today, we're going to start a new series through the book of James, in case you want to be reading ahead. But for the next eight weeks... What we're going to do is have this series that we're calling, I Believe in God, But. Now, it is very likely that most people here in the congregation would identify themselves as someone who believes in God and that you're a Christian. And so the term atheist, you wouldn't take to yourself because we usually mean by someone who professes atheism is someone who very ardently trusts and lives out as if there is no God. Okay, so we would say that's not us. However, the lives of many Christians can look a whole lot like an atheist at various points. Uh, Here's what I mean. Our thoughts, our words, and our actions can actually deny our belief in God. We believe 
but our life tells a different story. We profess faith, but for some reason there's a gap between what we profess and the way we live out our faith. And so what we're going to do in the next eight weeks is look at some of the classic gaps between saying we believe in God and yet something about our life can actually tell a different story. And the gap that we're considering today is I believe in God, but doubt is love. God's love is everywhere in Scripture. And it is everywhere from beginning to end. Uh, it's been called the heartbeat of Scripture, God's love. And what's amazing is when you read through the Bible, the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints were often kind of stumped with this question of, why, God, do you love us? Literally, sometimes they would ask that question. And I'll answer it by giving you this illustration. Some of you may remember Patty Chayefsky. He was an American playwright, novelist, screenwriter. And one of his plays that was, I mean, this guy is very critically acclaimed, uh, one of his plays was based on the Old Testament judge, Gideon. And in that play, as he looks at the life of Gideon and starts describing it, Gideon's in the desert, feeling rejected and lonely, but then God breaks into his tent one night and overwhelms Gideon with his love. Now, Gideon in the play would cry out in this very thick Brooklyn accent, which I am not going to attempt, so... You just get me. So Gideon, overwhelmed with God's love, says, God, oh God, all night long I've thought of nothing but you. I'm caught up in the raptures of your love, God. I want to take you and keep you. Hey, God, God, tell me you love me. I love you, Gideon. God replies, yeah, Tell me again, God. I love you, Gideon. There's a pause. Gideon scratches his head. I don't understand. Why? Why do you love me, God? And God replies, I hardly know why myself, Gideon. <laughs> now, just like we laugh at that, audiences would typically laugh at that line. And then, but the next thing God says was one that always tugged at my heart. God then said, but Gideon, my passion is an unreasonable thing. And I think that was Chayefsky's way of saying and taking what God said to His people Israel, why have I loved you? It's not because you were big and strong. It's not because you were important. It's not because you had made some great name for yourself. It's not for any reason that distinguishes you. In fact, you're not very distinguished at all. Why do I love you? I love you because I love you. His love is often an unreasonable thing. God is passionate for His children. God loves you, His children, this morning. And the Puritan, John Owen, writing about and thinking about God's love as it's throughout Scripture, he came to this conclusion. He wrote, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. 
And you might expect Owen to have said, the greatest unkindness you can do to God is to commit some egregious or... Is my microphone again? Yeah, okay. <laughs> if you're a visitor, it does that. I, I personally think they're playing with me in the booth, but uh, I love you anyway, Greg. Um, see, that's the problem. It just all goes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you might expect Owen to have said something along the lines of, the greatest unkindness is to commit some egregious or scandalous sin against God. And yes, no, sin always grieves the heart of God. But if you read Owen, I actually think he comes to the right conclusion that the worst thing you can do is to all proof contrary to doubt, to not believe that He really loves you. God's love is the heart of the Bible, and it's been defined many different ways. And here's one kind of a conglomeration of different theologians, and I will not have time to unpack all of this this morning. And, and just know, this concept of God's love, way too big for a sermon. My first draft got scratched because we would have been here an hour and a half. And so I had, you know, it's like, okay, Lord, well, then what can I say in the brief 25 or now 35 minutes that I have? So, um, Here's how theologians describe it, God's love. God's love is His self-giving affection towards us and His unselfish concern for our well-being that leads Him to act on our behalf for our happiness and welfare. Now, now two things I want you to see here. What all theologians agree to and all biblical scholars is that God's love absolutely contains two things, affection and action. Affection and action. God doesn't just feel something for you and fail to act on it. Nor is God just kind of mentally, passively acting without having very deep affection for you. The Apostle John writes a lot about God's love. And in his first epistle, if you're familiar with that, this you'll recognize, Beloved, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And we could probably take the whole morning and talk about that one little phrase, God is love. It's such a rich concept, but it can also be very easily misunderstood. And so let me at least explain it a little bit about what John is and is not saying here. John is not saying God is loving, though he would say that's absolutely true. But that's not what he's saying here when he says God is love. He's also not saying that one of God's activities is to love us, though John would say that's true too. What John means when he says God is love is that all of God's activity is loving. Everything God does is loving. Now, the reverse of that, because John does not then flip it as we want to do, which is this, love is God. John does not say that at all. 
very clearly, he is not trying to say that all the ways that we talk about love, personally or in our culture, that any display of affection is now somehow divine. That's something we need to be very careful. Because what John knows is that so many of our affections actually get perverted in different ways. They're distorted by sin. And some of the things we would say are displays of love would in no sense be divine. So God is love, but love is not necessarily God. What John's trying to do here is carefully define the character of God. And and so I think it's natural if, if God is love and the heartbeat of Scripture is God's love, why in the world do we doubt it? We do. If you've been a Christian any length of time, at some point you'll doubt God's love for you. And there can be many reasons for this, but let me just give you two that I think are the top two reasons Christians doubt God's love for them. The first is this. We can tend to doubt God's love because for some reason we have a greater awareness of sin. And this can take different forms too. For example, maybe it's that a certain besetting sin has you by the throat and you are failing constantly. You keep committing this sin over and over, and there's no victory in your life. When a besetting sin has you that way, you can really doubt God's love. Also, it may not be a besetting sin. Maybe God's given you a gift. And this will sound like a weird word, God, this is a gift from God, but sometimes God gives us a gift of just peeling away the layers and letting us see the totality of our sinfulness in a greater way. If you've been a Christian, you've probably experienced this, it's like, whoa, I didn't realize how deep my sin goes and how wide it goes. I didn't realize just how truly, utterly selfish I am how I love myself way more than I love God, how I love myself way more than I love my neighbor, how everything's about my own agenda. And yeah, maybe I'll give God a little time over here. So sometimes maybe what God has done is He's just kind of stripped it away and let you see how wide and deep your sin is in different ways. In a moment like that, even though that's a gift from Him, that's also a time where you can doubt God's love for you. And and what you think is something along these lines. Okay, I don't doubt that God loves people. He just loves other people. I don't know that He loves me. I can get how He'd love Dave or Bev. I don't know that He can love me right now. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that a greater awareness of sin causes us to doubt God's love because, you know, when we sin, what are we doing? We're running fast and hard away from God, aren't we? We're going the opposite direction. So when you're running fast and hard away from Him, you're running fast and hard away from His love. And so you tend to doubt it in those moments. That's one of the reasons we doubt. I think the second one may be even the bigger cause, though, for our doubt of God's love. And it's this. It's due to times of adversity. You know, when life's circumstances all start going wrong and everything seems to be falling apart, it's very easy in that moment to question, do you really love me, God? 
and we may not verbalize this, but this is what we think in the back of our heads. If God really loved me, He wouldn't be letting this happen to me. If God loved me, why in the world does He allow this? Now, I don't make light of this at all. I know a lot of things that are happening to some of you in this room. The recent death of a loved one, a job loss, a terminal diagnosis from your doctor, the announcement that your spouse is leaving you, your kids regularly making poor choices in life to their own destruction in different ways, and so many other things, adversity can regularly cause God's people to doubt His love. Now, regardless of the reason for the doubt, and and there could be more than these two, I just think these are the two biggest. What John tells us in the passage I just read, and what Scripture actually says everywhere, is that the solution to any reason for doubt is always the same. And and that's an interesting thing to me. Let's let's look at what John says first. Let me reread part of what I just read. Beloved, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now look how he follows this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That's really important. Not to just save us from our sins. But that today, in the midst of the adversity and everything else, the pain of life, the doubt, why did Jesus come so that you might live through him? This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see, what John tells us and what the rest of the Bible tells us is this. The gospel is always the solution to any of the reasons for our doubting of God's love. Now, you may be going, okay, I get the first one. I can see how the gospel addresses a greater awareness of sin. Because in the gospel, even as John said here, God loved us and His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, So Jesus' sacrificial work forgives all of our sinfulness. No more sacrifice is needed. No matter how deep your sin goes, His grace goes deeper. No matter how bad you think you are, His love goes much farther. Okay, so we get that one. And in times of greater awareness, we need that. But what about adversity? How does the gospel apply in times of adversity? How does it help us when we're going through present difficult circumstances? I'll illustrate it this way. Some of you know the author Jerry Bridges. He talks about a friend of his who was in pediatric ICU for two weeks as he, the dad, literally watched his three-year-old son die. There's nothing they could do. So his son was admitted to the pediatric ICU, stayed there a solid two weeks, and the father didn't leave the hospital. And his two weeks were his worst nightmare of his dearly loved son wasting away before his eyes, finally dying. What the dad did is his son 
because his son wasn't always conscious, he would read. And what he read most was this one book, and it was a book on the gospel. And when I say that, I don't mean it was like a book on Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We call those gospels. It was a book about the capital G gospel, Good News. And it was a couple of weeks after his son died that this father wrote a note to Jerry Bridges. And this is what he said, I want to say to you, the gospel really is for real life. And Bridges says he was kind of puzzled by this. How did a book on the gospel minister to this dad as he watched his son die? How did a book on this minister in the hours of deepest tragedy? Okay, I get how if I'm reading something on adversity, trials in life, hardships, how that may minister. But a book on the gospel? How could it help? And Bridges says he pondered this for several weeks, and it was finally he was preparing a message on God's love when the answer came to him, because he realized that in the gospel, as this father was reading it, that he not only saw but experienced God's love to himself personally in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the tragedy. You see, the cross is the preeminent display of God's love for us. And remember, it's a constant reminder that whatever we're going through in life, we have a God who knows suffering and pain. And Jesus even says, trust in me, and life doesn't just turn rosy. In fact, you'll, you'll experience great hardship. And the cross is a constant reminder that our God understands difficulty and suffering and despair. The gospel is what begins our relationship, our love relationship with God. But know this, don't think that the gospel is like Christianity 101. Is Christianity 101, 201, 301, 401, postgraduate degree, doctoral work, secondary doctoral work, and on and on it goes. The gospel is what begins our love relationship with the Lord, what sustains our love relationship with the Lord and lets us live in the power of Christ, and also which tells us that one day, you know what? This life isn't all there is. And one day the present sufferings and adversity are all going to be transformed. Think about Jesus' resurrection. We just celebrated last week. When he showed himself to the disciples, what did he still have? His scars. You could still see where the nails went in, hands and feet, and the spear stabbed his side. This is his new resurrection body. Why isn't it all just erased? Because the scars are the reminder of the love of God and the power of God. And somehow, the worst that happened to Jesus was transformed into something wonderful. That's actually a real promise to us. Whatever you're going through today, whatever hardship, whatever feels like it's piercing your side and unraveling your life like a loose sweater, the resurrection... And the gospel promises that too will be redeemed. That too will become a sign of joy somehow. 
And, and I'm not being Pollyanna-ish here. And I'm not minimizing suffering. But the good news is that our suffering will be redeemed. And I was just thinking about this this morning with, with John, the apostle. He writes this to a church that's suffering And he says, God is love. And think about what's going on in his life at this time. Already, he has witnessed at least two or three of his best friends being killed in horrendous ways. Because the other 11 disciples, all of them, minus John himself, died terrible deaths because of their faith. Because they were Christians, They were tortured and abused and murdered. And John witnessed some of that. And yet, as he knows some of my best friends have been killed, and I may be too, he didn't know what was going to happen, he can still write, God is love. John's not Pollyanna-ish. John knows the gospel is the power of God and is the reminder of God's love to us always. What I want to do is just just take a few minutes. You know, God's love is such a huge topic. We could be here for three hours, probably more, if I just read to you all the verses that very explicitly, I'm just talking about the explicit ones, there's plenty of implicit, that explicitly tell of God's love. We're just going to take about four or five minutes. If you want to close your eyes and just listen, you can. Some will be Older Testament, some will be Newer Testament. If you want to write down the references, they'll show up at the bottom right-hand corner. But just listen. And what I've told you about the gospel, just, just listen to what some of the biblical authors say in different ways about God's love. This is just a very small sampling. We begin. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. See what kind of love the Father has given us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can quote this one most likely. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. A longer one. We were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're his friends. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel is the constant reminder for the doubting heart. And so if the gospel's the solution, here's what we must do, friends. We must take the gospel and work what we know and believe more fully into our lives. It's got to move from your head into your heart, and that's been called the greatest distance to traverse. It's one thing. You know this. It's one thing to know God's love. It's a totally other thing to experience it. You are meant to both know and experience, knowing in its fullest sense the love of God. We must move it more fully into our lives. The Reformers called this preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day. All of them knew. We all tend to forget. We all tend to doubt. And so the Reformers even, these great leaders of the church said, every day I have to preach the gospel to myself so I don't doubt, so I don't forget, so that I experience His love. That's what preaching the gospel is to yourself. It's not just doing mental gymnastics. It's talking to your heart. I love Alistair McGrath. I'm here because I didn't go study with him many years ago. I still love him encourage you to read him widely. I think this was late 2006, 2007. He wrote this book called Doubting. And in it, I think he shares an illustration of how we can know God loves us. Let me just read part of what he writes. He says, an aunt of mine died some time ago, having lived to be 80 or so. She had never married, 
And during the course of cleaning out her possessions, we came across a battered old photograph of a young man. My aunt had, it turned out, fallen hopelessly in love as a young girl. It had ended tragically. She never loved anyone else and kept a photograph of the man she had loved for the remainder of her life. Why? Partly to remind herself that she had once been loved by someone. As she had grown old, she knew that she would have difficulty believing that at one point in her life she really had meant something to someone, that someone had once cared for her and regarded her as his everything. It could all have seemed a dream, an illusion, something she had invented in her old age to console her in her declining years, except that photograph gave the lie to that. See, that photograph reminded her it had not been invented. She really loved someone once and was loved in return, and the photograph was her sole link to a world in which she had been utterly valued. And what McGrath talks about in that photograph, he says, that photograph, that's the gospel to us. Here's part of the photograph to you. I know, it it just seems like words. But throughout the centuries, this has been referred to as a picture given to God's people. And, And when you know the picture well, it's that reminder, you are deeply loved. McGrath also very explicitly says, so also the communion bread and wine are like that photograph because they reassure us that something that seems too good to be true really did happen. So when we are tempted to question God's love because of our sin or difficult circumstances, look at the cross Remind yourself that on the cross, God proved His love to you beyond all doubt. In fact, don't wait for those hard times. Do this ahead of them. Take a good look at the cross every day to fortify yourself against those times of doubt and discouragement. Because if you practice preaching the gospel to yourself when it's not so hard, it'll be much easier to preach the gospel to yourself in the midst of the darkness. As we end, let me tell you something you may not know about the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. As a child, and I know, okay, hardened atheist, what's this got to do with the love of God? You'll see. As a child, he was actually very involved in the church. At the age of 18, he utterly rejected his faith. He rejected everything that his family held dear and believed, especially his mother. She was the most torn up of this more than anyone. He despised Christianity as the religion of the weak and promoted instead the will to power. You may have read in your college studies his book, Man and Superman, and you will remember that he insisted that he and his followers were the new Superman. They were, he said literally, the new gods. Nietzsche predicted that in the future, history would no longer be divided before Christ and after Christ. 
but before Nietzsche and after Nietzsche. He was part of the new gods of this world. Now, if you know his life story, things didn't quite work out that way. His mind began to break down. His health, too. He began to go blind. It got so bad, his friends put him in an an insane asylum. And it was in that dark hour that his Christian mother re-entered his life. You see, she had always kept up with what was going on with her son. And she heard about what happened to him and where his friends had placed him, and she came to care for him. She actually took her son home out of the insane asylum. Now, her son had rejected her and everything she loved, but she took him into her arms and devoted the rest of her life to his care. People who would visit would sometimes see her rocking to sleep the broken body of the man who claimed to be Superman. Who was he that she should be mindful of him? He didn't do anything in this circumstance to make himself lovable. In fact, he was incapable of making himself lovable to his mother. What logical reason was there for her to love him. There was no logic. He was her son. And she loved him with an unwavering, unconditional love and proved it with the rest of her life. Now, the reason I share that is I love the story. But like Nietzsche's mother, you see, that's an image of what God does for us. Because just like his mother, God comes looking for us He seeks us out. You realize our loving Heavenly Father sent His only begotten Son into the insane asylum of this world to save us, to embrace us, to pay for our debt at His own expense so that we might be made the children of God and receive all the promises and the guarantee of love forever. I want to encourage you to read something today. You see, what I just told you there is what Luke tells us in Luke 15. Here's a way you can preach the gospel to yourself today. And and this is an easy one. You'll get three very distinct pictures. In Luke chapter 15, just take some time and read that today. You'll get three stories, one of a lost sheep, one of a lost coin, one of a lost son. This image that's also on your bulletin cover is an image of the lost son story. And there's a lot of things that tie these three stories together. Let me just give you two to think about as you read it today. One, the person looking for the lost thing in each story is God. He's the shepherd looking for the lost sheep, the woman looking for the lost coin, the father looking down the road for his lost son. It's a picture of God's love and affection for us. He's turning the tables upside down, looking, hunting, pulling up the rugs. Why? Because He loves us. But another thing that connects all three of these stories is this. The lost thing or person is found, and there's a party. There's a celebration. There's hooping and hollering. They're throwing a feast. They're celebrating. They're gathering friends. 
And Luke tells us, and the angels in heaven are shouting at the top of their lungs because it's a picture of one of you coming to Him. You see, this image of the lost son being embraced by his father, you were deeply loved. You were not cast out. God's Word tells us you are His beloved. And sometimes we just need reminding. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You. We thank You for Your amazing love. And and Father, I pray that for every single one of us, myself included, that we wouldn't just mentally know Your love, we would experience it every single day. Lord, this morning I do pray for my brother who is caring for an aging parent whose mind is gone and it's really hard. May he know your love today in the midst of that. I pray for my brother who's caring for a wife who is looking at that same future and ask that he would experience your love today. I pray for my friend who worries so much over her children, who just make one bad choice after another. Lord, in the midst of the despair, may she experience your love. Lord, I pray for my friend whose wife said she's done and he feels like a loser. I pray that today he would experience your love and that his name and life is not defined as loser, but is defined as beloved. And Lord, for every single person here this morning, I pray that you would speak into their lives. Maybe the life is wonderful. May they experience your goodness today. And Lord, for those experiencing the worst of circumstances, may your gospel be a picture of your unfailing love. We thank you, Lord, that whatever we experience in life, though we will never understand it, comes through a nail-scarred hand. And those nail scars are proof once again of your eternal love. Remind us, God. In your name we pray, amen.